Hello, and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And Don, when we say biblical literacy, discipleship, and both types of contexts, what are we talking about? Well, biblical literacy is important in order to convey the fullness of the story of Scripture as opposed to our typical hunt and peck version, which uh, usually is filled with agenda and sometimes manipulating theology in order to fit your own desires. Uh, discipleship is the idea of trying to take the ways and the things that you believe are good and best way to live and actually living them. So aligning your believing, your behave, and the cultural and social context uh, of the passages is important because there was something intentional and deliberate about what the author had intended for the first listeners to understand and hear. And we need to be cognizant of that and fair to that. Absolutely. So what we're trying to do here is give you new tools to breathe new life into the text and hopefully discover new stuff along the way that you never knew. That would be fantastic. Let's hope we pull that off. Yeah, we'll see about this week. Uh, So this week we are continuing our Torah um, portions after taking uh, two weeks off. Um, And so we're just going to keep on with the schedule. So this week we are looking into Genesis 44, 18 through 47, 27. This is the story of uh, Joseph revealing himself to his brothers and um, moving Jacob and the rest of his family down to Egypt because of the famine that's going on and what ensues because of that. Uh, So done. Um, Anything really pop out to you while you're reading this this week? Uh, I think it's, you know, we have these, this interesting moment. Again, we have God appearing to Jacob. Uh, God has done this on a handful of occasions. Uh, And so this, this is just one more time God appears to Jacob and seemingly each time God appears to Jacob, it's like the night before or right before Jacob is about to go through something difficult or complicated. And so I think that we're kind of tipped off a little bit here of the complications Jacob is facing as he's, he's approaching death and everything. Uh, there's also Nehum Sarna, who is an amazing uh, theologian and has done quite a bit of writing on Genesis, also points out how the vision that uh, Jacob has takes it from this being just about going and seeing Joseph and makes it a, a national thing. It makes it about Israel, not about Jacob reuniting with his son, but that the call to go down to Egypt is for the preservation of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. So I think that's really interesting. Uh, it's not just a story about a reunion in this section, but it's also a story about the preservation of the covenant with Abraham. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's really fascinating. Although it does make sense um, considering everybody is moving down that way. Um, one thing I do want to point out is uh, something you brought up when Jacob um, hears from God, he hears from God uh, at Bathsheba, mm. which I believe we've brought up. Um, that's been a place in the text in the portions that we've already covered, if I remember correctly. But y- Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what what are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, honestly, I I don't know. Uh, what what about that 
captures what you you know why why is that something that's intriguing to you um i don't know i mean in full disclosure i just caught that when we were talking about it so i didn't really look into that this week but i just thought it was interesting that um jacob returned to a place that has already been uh not, not just returned to a place but um sacrificed uh at an altar there i'm just looking at the text uh, yeah, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Um, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Um, I don't know. I just thought that that was really interesting. Also how it calls, you know, Yahweh here, the God of his father, Isaac. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I wish I, I wish I would have paid it, uh, more attention to that in the text earlier when I was preparing for this. Sure. It's like that there's all, there's something there that, you know, hey, maybe one of our listeners will, will do that and uh, let us know what you think. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, Jacob goes down to Egypt. Um, Got nothing? I, I don't know. Like, the, I, I always kind of struggle with the Joseph story. I just really don't know what to do with it. Um, Why is that? Well, I just... I just don't, I, I don't know. It's never, it's not that it hasn't resonated, um, but it's just one of those things where it's like, it's like, it's great that it's here, but Joseph is not one of the patriarchs. Right. After, after Jacob, we get no more patriarchs. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's always the God of Abraham, Isaac and, and Jacob. And it's just like, okay, well, what happens here? Right. That, that that ends. And I, go ahead. No, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a strange thing because Joseph uh, seen, has a longer section in the text than uh, Isaac does. Yeah. Um, and so we focus on Joseph for quite some time. Uh, though I would argue the Joseph story is really about Jacob. Um, and so to me, that's, that's interesting. How does the Joseph story like inform us about Jacob as opposed to Joseph being about Joseph? It's about, it's still about Jacob at the end of the day, right? Uh, whether it be uh, Joseph is, is sold into slavery because uh, Joseph's brothers uh, are jealous and the father did nothing to quell that jealousy uh, Jacob didn't do anything to to fix that relationship or step in. And so, uh, in fact, he seems to notice that there's some problems, but yet still put Joseph in some strange predicaments uh, that cause his brothers to do away with him. So it's it's a really fascinating insight to me into Jacob. There's almost like Jacob is afraid of conflict, right? Like Jacob does not like conflict whatsoever. Um, and seems to be passed on to the sons because it's like, how can I, you know, Judah's like, how could I do this? I can't go back to my father without Benjamin uh, because Jacob just does not do well with conflict. Uh, so whether it's, you know, he has dreams that help kind of uh, calm him uh, in the midst of chaos or whatever, it's just, it just seems like God is constantly coddling Jacob in some way. Uh, which is really interesting to me. Yeah, that is fascinating. I had not, I definitely hadn't thought about it like that before. Um, 
I will say this. The one thing that the Joseph story does have is reconciliation between family. Um, yeah, but in a really strange, manipulative way, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's the Bible, though. Strange and manipulative. <laughs> well, why do you think, like, Joseph's so interesting to me because, like, in the story with, like, the prison, it's like he's in prison. He's, uh, you know, he's he gets out because someone finally remembers to tell Pharaoh about this guy in prison. But he doesn't seem to go out of his way to get notice while he's in prison. Uh, he seems to kind of let things go like and fall into place on their own. But then he's so manipulative with his brothers, right? Like it's such a fascinating story. And I mean, I can't say I wouldn't be bitter at my brothers either, but like, I mean, he's, he, he's downright diabolical, like hiding the chalice in the, in yeah. the bag, right? Like to like, you know, all this stuff of like, just manipulating the moment to cause them great anxiety and distress and imprisoning someone and hiding himself from them. And just it's to me, it's just, it's almost like uh, Joseph is like the antithesis of Jacob. Joseph is thriving off the conflict here. Like, yeah, he's just, he's all in, man. He is enjoying the conflict, but then we'll turn around and tell his brothers. But when you get asked about your occupation, don't tell them that you're shepherds, which is also interesting because that is like him telling them not to be in conflict. Yet, I don't know. Joseph's so fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just can't get over the fact that Donnie Osmond played him and I was subjected to that music um, because I was in the musical version of that with donny osmond no when i was in high school so this uh this i don't know so this part of the this this part of the text always just rubbed me weird yeah i think i feel have similar feelings not because i have any problem against donny osmond uh like you but (laughs) more so like i struggle with it because it's always been used as like christology like that in some way joseph is a type of jesus and you know what saving the people and how, you know, he is the one that uh, brings salvation to Egypt and stuff. I have never heard that. Really? Yeah. That is fascinating. And, and so for me, my struggle with this is like, it's, it's like, I don't want to read it that way. I want to, I want to read it and know how did this impact hearing this story? Why was this story important enough to remember for the first listeners. And I'm not sure that I, I completely know. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think that, um, well, yeah, I mean, that's okay. So one part that we're, that, uh, that we just have to address at the very end of this is something that you pointed out before we started recording that's been used, um, for anti-Semitic rhetoric. Yeah. Um, which is the portioning off of lands from Egypt and uh, just, you know, uh, having the Egyptians sell everything to Joseph who gave it in turn to Pharaoh in order to survive uh, because of the famine. And as a result of that deal, um, the Israelites were given really nice land. So, yeah, I, I mean, they're seemingly the best land 
Yeah. So at the end of this portion, um, the Egyptians are in servitude to Pharaoh. Yep. So you've got the people who are uh, from the land yes. enslaved by their owner, or not by their owner, but by the by the ruler of the land. And you've got the foreigner, which is uh, Jacob and and everybody in the fattest parts of the land. Yes. Free to do, which is quite the opposite of how things are at the beginning at, at the beginning of Exodus. Right. Absolutely. Even, even towards the end of Genesis. Right. So like, this is really important because we have this, this moment. And I think it's good to acknowledge what has happened. Like through this famine, ultimately a lot of the Egyptians lost their land and became sojourners and the sojourners or the people who were told to sojourn now own land. And it's a flipping of this moment. Right. And we know because of all the other, uh, you know, passages that we've done so far is that every time Israel decides to settle down and own land, and build on that land, it ends up not good. Yes. Whether it's like Babel or other things, right? That every time they own land or Sodom and Gomorrah, that it it ends poorly. Yeah. Or even most recently with um, the, the last time we talked about it would have been Isaac um, digging the wells. Right. Yep. And taking ownership. Yep. And so this again is this moment where it kind of points us to and says, uh oh, something's going to go wrong, right? You know, ultimate cliffhanger uh, that, you know, something's about to go wrong. They now own land. It's been gifted to them. And, and the other thing is, is that it's been so important to Abraham. Remember when Abraham bought land for Sarah to bury Sarah? Oh, yeah. What did he not want? He didn't want to uh, be owed or have any reason to owe. Um the people he bought the land from. So right. he so, overpaid for it. So he overpaid for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And now we have a situation where it's like, and the land is given to them. Yeah. That is fascinating. I didn't even think about that. Well, what kills me about this is um, even before they get there, even before the land is um, sold to Joseph, uh, Pharaoh says, bring your family down here and I will give them the best land of of egypt right so like it was something that was going to happen even before they had the means and the ability to do so so i don't know what that says about about this but i just thought that was fascinating as well right and where this this gets pushed into some anti-semitic uh rhetoric is people will point and say see joseph uh manipulated the financial situations of people Right, because I don't know how much people know about anti-Semitic rhetoric, pr- primarily from like Nazism and stuff. But it's always around money and how the Jewish people are manipulating money systems. And so they point to this and say, "Look, here's evidence. They enslaved Egypt uh, by uh, taking all of their land and everything and manipulating it." And and of course, I disagree with that assessment. Yeah. Um, but the text does seem to imply that because of the actions that Joseph took, that Pharaoh agreed to, 
uh, indeed people did lose their land in order to live. But that's how we have to see it. Like they sold their land. Like they didn't sell their land until they needed to. Yeah. Until, so there was their, they ran out of money. Um, mm-hmm. And then they sold their cattle or the livestock. Mm-hmm. And then it was the land. And then yeah. it was enslaving themselves. Right. And so, you know, we have to imagine that if Joseph is the good person that, you know, the text seems to want us to believe that that was a last resort. Like we are like, this is desperation that this nation is going to fold. This kingdom is going to fall apart if we don't do something. Um, And it's, it still is fascinating. The irony is interesting that the next thing we know, the Israelites are enslaved. Uh, as the Egyptians seem to get their land back and their property back and the fortunes, the fortunes have changed that uh, it's flipped and there is anger in some way or fear of the Israelites in that space. So, yeah, although I, something that just, I don't know, you said the, the whole thing about uh, Joseph supposed to be a good person, at least that's what the text implies. What I don't know if I, really agree. I mean, I think that the text shows us that Joseph is different about different situations, but like if he knew that there were five years left in the famine, like he, he interpreted the dreams and everything, right. Make a way for the people to be able to eat without giving up everything. Right. That just is shitty. I'm sorry, but you know, I can't say I'm surprised though. Yeah, I've never attempted to save a kingdom from starvation because of a famine for seven years, so I can't say whether or not what he did was... Well, I have, and it was weird. Well, I remember that. Yeah. I I really respected the way you handled things. Thanks. Um, (laughs) But uh, I don't know. Just I don't know. But then again, this might just be because I don't know what to do with Joseph, but I do love the idea that he is... um, but this is this story is actually about Jacob, especially how even though it is manipulative, how Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, it's the first time that we actually see reconciliation between brothers and actual change. Yeah, you know, and dating back to probably at least what the text shows, like with Cain and Abel, um, what is it? Uh, Isaac and Esau only come together after um, Abraham is dead. Right. And then Esau and uh, not Isaac and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael. And then um, Esau and uh, Jacob, you know, Jacob dividing up his camp just in case Esau decides to actually kill him. Some of his camp will survive. Yep. But yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to find this one section that uh, where Jacob is. So in verse nine of chapter 47, this is such an interesting statement from Jacob. Oh yeah. The, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my father's. And I think it's interesting, like he views, like, like he talks about how hard his life has been. Like it's been one disaster after another, whether it be losing his family and having to flee for his life, um, 
becoming uh, in some way enslaved to Laban and tricked and then further uh, taken advantage of by Laban to the fear of the conflict with Esau to uh, now a famine that threatens the well-being of his family and also the loss of Joseph, right? Yeah. Perceiving that Joseph was killed by an animal um, and to like just you think about his life and it's just been disaster after disaster after disaster. I mean, you could even argue that like uh, Esau and him struggling in the womb, like his life begins in struggle. Yeah. And you just think, and now he's about to die. He's getting old and he's not even like, it seems like he must be afraid because God comes to him in a dream or a night vision or whatever you want to call it. And is like, I'm here. Like, like take your, take your family to Egypt. It's how uh, Israel will survive. Like this whole thing. I mean, Jacob's life, it's just such a fascinating statement. I think it's looked over in this section where he's like few and hard have been the years of my life. And you just think, Every time God appears to him, it's like because something bad just happened or is about to happen. Yeah, it makes you wonder if um, how he feels about the the uh, contract that he made up with God about um, being delivered safely back to his father's household. Then you know he'll follow Yahweh is something he actually <laughs> wish he would have not gone through with. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's all I really have for this for this portion. I mean, it's not a lot, but you know, like I said, this I, I never really know what to do with the story. I didn't want to um, spend too much time talking about Joseph and his brothers, but that's my own junk. <laughs> sure, I you know, there's one other piece here, and I'm trying to find the the section. It's when. Uh, God appears to him. Oh, here it is in 46. When God appears to Jacob, I need to look into this some more, but I find it interesting in verse two, it says, God spoke to Israel in, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. Now, see, I may have misread it, because there's too many he's there. So I'm not sure who's saying what at one point, like where it says, and he said, here I am. I initially read that as being God saying, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Now rereading it, I could see where you might read the, and he said as, as Jacob saying, here I am. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of maybe deflates what I was thinking, but I just thought it was interesting at first blush that God is saying, using the phrase that Abraham used when God called out to Abraham, that God is using that phrase. But it seems like it could be, uh, because you, I don't know how your translation, I'm looking at the NRSV and it's like, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am oh, God. No, so, my Mine's broken up. It's uh, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. Yeah, see, this doesn't say he replied. Yeah. And 
So there's just too many he's here. I don't know. <laughs> Although what, what something I'm glad that you brought up this part because um, it just kicked something loose in my head. Uh, the uh, let's see, where's I just saw it. I will make you a great nation. Um, there, verse four. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And so, yeah. Just thinking about um, the. Uh, you know, I can't, I cannot wait till we get in Exodus. I'm very excited about that. Um, and I just want to be, honestly, that's all I want to talk about because it's setting it up. Right. And it's just such a fascinating part of the text and I absolutely love it. And I'm impatient to get there, especially because of that verse. And then the, like I said, the setup at the end of this um, Torah portion. Well, and so so yeah, I'm, I I love Exodus as well, and I can't wait for that either. But that verse, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, is to me one of the most important pieces of, of biblical ideas when it comes to God and God's relationship with God, with the faithful that I think we overlook, whether it's Babylonian exile, whether it's uh, in Egypt, whether it's whatever exile it might be, whether it's even the exile from the garden, right? In every instance that Israel is exiled, God goes with them. Yeah. And to me, that is such a significant piece for healthy, exilic theology to recognize that when God exiles Israel for um, bad behavior or unhealthy being that God doesn't just send them away from God, but God says, um, you cannot be in this place and I will go with you. Um, that to me is just amazing. Like it's God isn't just there for the rescue party in Exodus, right? God isn't just there to be the hero in the, in the rescue. God is also, goes down to Egypt where God's voice is not welcome. It seems. Yeah. Right. But God is still willing to go with them into Egypt. Uh, it's just, uh, I think to me, uh, I've been raised in a Christian theology that has this idea that sin separates me from God. And so when I mess up, uh, and I am exiled in some way that I'm exiled from God, but that's not the story of scripture. No, that in, in the mistakes, in the uh, misjudgments, in the poor execution of faithfulness, when Israel finds itself um, outside of the walls of Israel, the, the land of Canaan, that God hasn't boarded God's self up there and says well i'll wait for you till you get back good luck but instead god says in exile i will go that's just that's such that's so important in imagery and i think would have saved me a lot of distress as a kid when i perceived that anytime i messed up that uh, god was like well good luck and slapped me on the ass and sent me out the door don't let the door hit you on the way out right oh yeah I mean, that's just, that's just not how the text imagines God to behave. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's bad garden theology. Right. uh, Yeah. Yeah. You said, I mean, you said everything we're saying on that. 
Um, although I will say I, I am excited. Uh, actually, no, screw that. I'm going to go back for a second. Um, just also that and the idea that, um, that Jesus was the only one that could forgive sins because of the separation. Right. Which is just bullshit. Yes. It's um, forked up. Yeah, it is like, it's it's oppressive theology. That's all it is. It's meant to keep people in line and afraid of, you know, missing any type of mark, but also just to to keep people um, in their oppressed little bubble. Right. Oh man, that re- that stuff really pisses me off. <laughs> like, oh whatever. Um. Well, is there anything else that you want to talk about in the text? Um, no. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm sure there is, but uh, at the moment, I don't have anything. So I do want to ask one question um, before we close up shop today. And that's, I guess, what's the discipleship moment in this? Um, I, think I, I think maybe we touched on it, right? That God isn't looking for perfection, like a tightrope walk uh, that that we we are either in or out but when we find ourselves living in a space that is not uh healthy that that god doesn't uh abandon us in that space but god is with us in that space god goes out into that space and i you know jeremiah 29 my one of my favorite passages is you know plant gardens and build homes and marry and raise families um, that your welfare is the welfare of the city. And I love that that is an exilic passage. So while you're in exile, while you are uh, in a space that you, you know, in that instance, you know, they were probably oppressed at, at many levels that your well-being, your faithfulness in this space can actually be the welfare for others. So um, I just think it, sh- it shifts for us the way that we think and imagine we need to function in order to have the presence of God near us. Yeah. I've been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. See ya. See ya.